of the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. We're just going to stop there for this morning. So you're familiar with this uh, with this story, if you're familiar with scripture at all, Jesus going in and cleansing the temple. A lot of questions that are uh, risen, uh, that are raised by where John puts this in his gospel. In the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Here, John has it happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So the question comes up: Well, what's the what's the deal here? Is this uh, is this out of order as far as chronology, or did this happen twice? Um, Well, I'll say a couple of things about that question. Number one, it would be easy to get so fixated on that question that we miss the intent of the passage. Number two, there are lots and lots of arguments for one way or the other. I'll just say I would tend toward believing that this probably happened twice. Once toward the beginning, once toward the end. And then I'm going to say... I'm not going to tell you why because it would take up too much time. So if that's a curiosity you have, do a little study and come up with your own conclusion. It changes nothing about what the passage actually means. So that's where I am on that. If I've ticked you off right away, I'm sorry. But it's just getting started because this is a hard passage. This is a passage where Jesus comes in and does some things that are really, really surprising that have some pretty tough implications for us as well. Um, so the story goes that they leave the wedding, they go down to Capernaum for a couple of days, and then they leave and they go to the, uh, the Passover. They go to the Passover. Um, and, and it says that um, when the Passover was at hand in verse 13... Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and then he went into the temple, and and you know what he found there. He went into the temple, and he found the people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were there. Well, it's worth having a little bit of a description of what's happening here. Um, During the Passover week in Jerusalem the population would explode up to ten times its normal population. So this is a time in Jerusalem where it is very, very busy. You might even say that in Jerusalem during Passover week, this was the peak of tourism, even though it's not really for a tourist attraction. You know, people are coming in. Because they're coming in to do what God had prescribed for them to do. And if you think about it from a tourist perspective, where you have lots of people moving into a small space, any business-minded person smells opportunity, right? That's just the way that works. And that's exactly what happened Eventually, as we get to this point in Israel's history, that's exactly what happened here. So there's, there's reasons why these opportunities would, would come up. So whenever you would come to, uh, 
Whenever you would come to the temple during Passover week, you had to have a sacrifice. You came to offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was prescribed by Moses, and it had to meet a certain standard. So it had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. So if you were going to go to Jerusalem and you had three or four days or a week-long journey, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for you to take your sacrifice with you and hope that it would survive the elements and still be in perfect form by the time you got there. So if you had a lamb that you were going to take or or an oxen that you were going to take and it's going to be a seven-day journey where you're going to have to camp out, you know, six nights, possibility that a wolf or a coyote or whatever kind of predators that were out there might get after your sacrificial animal and nip its ear and when you get to Jerusalem the the, the lamb looks fantastic except for there's just one little nip right here obsolete get that thing out of here it's worthless you can't do anything with it so after a little while some smart business guys saw an opportunity let's Let's make this, uh, let's see how we can uh, create a drive-through sacrificial system, okay? You just drive up to the window and tell them what you need. And it's right there. You don't even have to get out of the car, as it were. It's right there in the temple, okay? This is an all-in-one, all-inclusive resort. You walk in, you have everything you need. Now, those may sound like silly analogies, but... It's really closer to that than it is further from it. That's what's happening here in, in Jerusalem. This is an all-in-one worship center where you can get anything and everything you need in this one-stop shop. And the kicker is, everything that's for sale is fully in line with God's prescribed way that this worship ought to take place. So, how can you beat that? How can you beat that? So, it was easier to buy these animals to to sacrifice once you got there, instead of trying to make sure that they maintain their perfection on the the way there. Uh, Up until this time, the the, the animals and the, the, the market, as it were, was not always in the temple. Uh, it used to be um, across the Kidron Valley, across from the temple, and there were four different markets. And if you were coming into the city, then you can go and, and you can find what animal you can afford. You know, if you were very, very poor, then, then it would be um, a dove. If you had the money, then it would be an oxen. So whatever it was, you could go to the market there, uh, detached from the, from the temple. But this market was set up... And, and it was set up under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, that is, the religious leaders of the day. Those, these were the guys calling all the shots. And so they were the ones who were overseeing the inspections, and they were the ones who were also selling the animals. So it doesn't take a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of sense to figure out that what the Sanhedrin had set up for themselves was a very, very lucrative business. Uh, Josephus tells us that it wasn't uncommon 
And, and he gives us a specific. In A.D. 66, as the Roman armies were coming against Jerusalem, that lambs, this is just lambs alone, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed that year at the temple. 255,000. Imagine how much money you'd make if you sold 255,000 Big Macs. Okay? A lamb cost a lot more than a Big Mac. Okay? You see, it, it, they had turned it into this. It was huge. And these guys, these Sanhedrin, uh, ha- saw opportunity, and they've, they've, they've taken a good thing and made it into a lucrative business for themselves. And so... The way that the temple was set up, there were different courts, and the further you got in, the more restrictions there were. So the outer court was a court that was called the Gentile court. When you got to the temple and you walked in, anybody could go there. You go in a little further and you had the women's court. The women could go, the women Jews could go into this court, this other inner uh, circle, and then whenever you got past that, things got Stricter and stricter, or maybe I should say more exclusive and more exclusive until you made your way into the Holy of Holies. Well, the, the market was set up in the Gentile court. Okay, that's where they put it. Um, and so whenever you walked in to this very, very crowded temple, the first place that you would go would be the Gentile court. The intention of that Gentile court was so that Gentiles, unbelievers, could come and at least have a little bit of an idea of the glory of God as far as this Hebrew God that they knew nothing about, the glory of Yahweh. They could see the glory of the the worship and of His people who were set aside to bring these sacrifices to Him in worship. It was... Somewhere they could go, somewhere they could see. But what they ended up seeing, by the time Jesus gets there this time, as a young Jewish man, Jesus would have been going to the temple years and years and years before the scene that we're in right now. But what they would have seen, what the Gentile court would have been turned into is a business system with, um, with rig inspections that was all for turning a profit. So what do I mean by rigged inspections? Well, for those who decided to bring in their own animals, those inspectors were so good that they could come up with the tiniest little blemish Maybe even manufacture it. You know, it's one of those things where you say, hey, you see the spot on the wall behind you? you know, and if you trust me, you'll say, yeah, even if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about. And the truth is, there is no spot on the wall. You just said that because you trusted that what I was saying was true. And so they would say, hey, there's a blemish here. Oh, you can't see it? It must be, you know, you must have an issue with your sight or something. But yeah, there, there's a blemish here. So what you're going to need to do is get rid of this animal and then go to, our, go to our guys. They'll fix you up with a real good one. We've got just what you need, leather seats and all. Okay? That's, it was rigged. They were making money. What did the Gentiles see as they come in and they're seeing, how does this worship, how does this system of worship go? What is this all about? Well, 
the only thing a Gentile would have had a front row seat to was greed, corruption, and taking the, the, the and, and, and those who were coming to worship being taken advantage of. So that's a little different than Jesus was the kind of guy that didn't, lo- that, that didn't like dogs in the house, so he just got the animals out of there. No, the animals belonged there. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that these people had taken this temple and they had turned it into a business, a lucrative business. So there's a little bit of a description as far as the animals goes. Secondly, he talks about the money changers. The money changers. Any male that came had a, uh, a temple tax that he had to pay once a year, half a shekel. The problem, though, was that uh, you could only pay this in a particular currency. So if you were coming from somewhere outside of Jerusalem, and, and, and even in Jerusalem, this was not a currency that was really... Um, used outside of the temple tax, you needed to take your money and you needed to exchange it for the right currency. Different people have different reasons why this was. A lot of the local currency had the, uh, um, had the, uh, uh, the king or the ruler's uh, face engraved on the coin, and so they would call that idolatry, these people who would claim to be gods. You know, Nero was one of them, and there are other Roman emperors who, who would claim to be gods. And they would say, you can't pay the temple tax with an idolatrous coin that has the image of a man who claims to be God. You can't do that. And so they set up an exchange booth. Be just like we would do if we go to another country with another currency. You would go and you would make sure you you got the right currency. There was nothing wrong with this. Matter of fact, it was set up in Exodus chapter 30, 13 through 16, that this is what should have happened. So in order for a good, faithful Jew to be able to pay this temple tax, they would have to go see the money changers who would gladly exchange currency at a significant rate of inflation. So you may go and say, hey, okay, I'm, I'm here to pay my temple tax. I need, I need half a shekel. And they say, okay, good, that's 20 U.S. dollars. You say, what a minute, what, 20 U.S. dollars? Back home, I can exchange this and, and I, can, I, can, I can pay a dollar for half a shekel. Why is it 20? Well, you're not back home, are you? So either you're going to pay it or you're not. And guess what they did? They paid it. That's what you did. So these people are taking advantage of, and really they are robbing these people blind so they can come in and uh, worship God the way that God had laid out for them to worship back in Exodus. Now, there's a significance about this temple in that this is the only place where this worship took place, right? The temple was, it was, a, obviously there was a religious, um, there was religious activity going on, but 
The temple was also a place of just national identity. This is where God meets with his people, and we are his people, and we have access to this place where God's presence dwells unlike any other place on the planet. And so when we go to the temple to worship, we find in this temple worship a sense of security, a sense of identity as God's people. You would not dare skip out on doing what God called you to do in the temple. Okay? If you did, uh, you, you would be, if you were a faithful Jew, you would be incredibly, incredibly suspicious, insecure as you're standing before the Lord and what might be the fallout of that. Now that's a lot of, a lot of background going on. But we need a little bit of background to figure out what it was that made Jesus so upset that he would sit down and he would put together a cord of whip or a whip of cords and he would drive these people out. Well, the original intent of the temple was that it was to be used for worship to honor and to glorify God. The other reality about this is that God, and and you'll note, God had meticulously told them how they could worship Him in an acceptable way. You know that. When we think about how God told them to pay attention to how they built the tabernacle, what the materials were, what the length was, what the overlay of the gold was, what the type of wood was, and so forth and so on. Okay. God was very, very meticulous about how he should be worshipped. And what might surprise you is that by the time Jesus gets to the temple here, the religious leaders had not let up one iota on how meticulous they were as to how that worship took place. Now, sometimes it's, it's, it, we, we, we get maybe confused or we misunderstand some of these things and, and think, well, the Pharisees had just, you know, they were all about themselves and they had abandoned uh, true religion. Well, they had abandoned true religion for sure, but it wasn't because they skimped out on the details It was because they got so busy with the details that they missed the substance of what was really supposed to be going on. It was that they left their heart at home and they filled their wallet at church. Okay, the problem here is not that they somehow had erred from what God had prescribed. As a matter of fact, you couldn't find anyone who was as meticulous. The business was was based on being meticulous with what happened in temple worship. We're going to be so picky about the animals that God brings in that we're not going to tolerate what most people would tolerate as being unblemished. And we're going to make sure that the ones that do go through are the animals that make it are are combed over with a fine-tooth comb. They are Pharisee qualified. They meet our guaranteed standard. And then we're going to sell them to you. And you may think the price is ridiculous, but where else can you go and get the kind of assurance that this meets God's standard? Nowhere. Where else can you go but to the money changers table to make sure that you're giving exactly what God prescribed? So, brothers and sisters, sometimes we misunderstand. 
It wasn't that the Pharisees missed the meticulous detail behind what it was that God had prescribed for temple worship. It was that the Pharisees couldn't see the forest for the trees. They were so consumed with the details that they forgot there was an actual God who dwelt in that temple who saw everything they did and wasn't being worshipped by their outward obedience and the rotten selfishness of their hearts. You see, what we, get, what we see whenever we get to this passage, I think what John's communicating to us here, and we'll draw some parallels, particularly in this first half, but both of these go together, uh, as far as 20, I'm sorry, as far as uh, verses 12 through uh, 22, is that John is pointing out that Jesus Christ is God's answer for disordered worship. That's what we find here. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a mild repre- that's a mild way to title what we find here, disordered worship. That's what it was. Was there worship going on? Eh, kind of, in form, in function. They were doing the things that God told them to do. But was it disordered? Of course it was. Worship wasn't the main thing that was going on here. And so by the time Jesus gets to the temple, in this scenario we find several perversions from God's original design. They had nothing to do with the details. And we would do well to examine ourselves here. Number one, by the time Jesus gets to the temple, it was the priests who were dictating acceptable worship, not God. You say, well, what do you mean? I thought you said they were good at the details. Yeah, their details, their deviation went something like this. If God thinks this is good, this will be even better. Okay. It wasn't, let's get rid of what God says altogether. It's, yeah, this is what he said to Moses, but let's go one step more to make sure we're covering our bases. If this is good, this is better. They had gotten to the place where the priests were the ones dictating what was acceptable. The priests were the ones who were saying, this is the way worship should take place. They were improving, or at least thought they were improving, on what God had originally laid out. Second, by the time Jesus makes it to the temple... In this scenario, the temple itself was being used to point to the greatness of Israel, not God. Look at us. Look at us. Look at, look, look at, look at how we come to the Lord. And, and, and look at this place. Look at this place. We're going to talk in a minute about what Herod had done with the temple and, and, and this 46 years they're talking about. If you were to go, the structure was incredibly impressive. The busyness was incredibly impressive. The amount of, of activity that was going on was incredibly impressive. But it wasn't about God. It was about Israel. You see, that's how you take a good practice and turn it into a good business. It becomes about me, not about him. 
Number three, the sacrificial system was perpetuating sin rather than picturing the seriousness of it. You say, what do you mean? How does that happen? Well, you walk into the temple. You walk in and, and, and have a desire to uh, please the Lord with the right kind of sacrifice. And the way the Jews had it set up was that they would rob you blind in order for you to do what they would say, please the Lord. 255,000 lambs sacrificed in a Passover week represented 255,000 highway robberies. You realize that's, what that, that's how that worked. 255,000 people who had overpaid. 255,000 either people or families who had paid way too much on a currency exchange. And 255,000 very, very lucrative exchanges on the Sanhedrin's part. The sacrificial system had perpetuated sin, not displayed the seriousness of it. They had the form right, but their heart was way out in left field. Third, if you were a Gentile looking in, what you would have seen would be the poor were being taken advantage of rather than being cared for. This is the only window that the Gentiles had into the worship of Jehovah, and it was a picture of chaotic, greed-stricken, hard-hearted, hypocritical scandal that was endorsed by the temple leaders, which every Jew had to experience before they went in for worship. Rather than a place that pictured the holiness of God and His covenant love for His people, it became a public display of depravity. All of that, while staying meticulous with making sure that all the details that were prescribed in Exodus were being carried out. It's incredible, isn't it? And so Jesus comes in and he takes this whip that he makes and he drives out the animals. He drives out the money changers. And essentially, when Jesus does this, he's saying, you guys just can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. Now, this is more than a quote from a movie. And the meaning is different than the movie, if you know what movie I'm talking about there. It's not that you can't handle the truth because the truth is too much for you. It's that you can't handle the truth because you just can't help yourself. You just can't help but taking the truth and making it all about you. That was Israel's problem from the beginning. They had 
uh, a very special relationship with God, unlike any other people in any other place. And what do you see time and time and time and time and time and time again in Israel's history? Well, we start out in Judges with every man doing what was right in his own eyes. We make our way into John, and that's still the case. Was it because they didn't have the truth? No, it was because they couldn't handle the truth. It's worth noting that all the hustle and bustle that was going on in the Gentile court was a calculated effort to preserve truth. Don't miss that. It would be easy for us to miss the fact that these religious leaders, although they were scandalous, and although they were greedy, and although they were taking advantage of the people, there was a tremendous amount of work that went into making sure that the supplies and activities for the Passover week were according to God's prescription. Can you imagine it being your job to make sure that 255,000 lambs made it into a building in seven days? That was somebody's job. There's a lot of effort going on here. And it's for a meticulous reason. This is what God says needs to happen. And so they had the right location. They had the right animals. They had the right currency. But they had one big problem. The only thing they were missing was the right heart. And the New Testament tells us that if you don't have the right heart, then it is impossible for you to worship God in an acceptable way. Worship takes place in the heart. And when I'm saying the heart, you know I'm not talking about the organ that pumps. I'm talking about your inner man. The truth was they couldn't handle the truth because they had a heart that was not set on God's glory. They had a heart that was set on their glory. Somehow they were able to use these external elements of worship and use them to exalt themselves and their agendas over and above God and His agenda. And the truth is, a heart that is filled with pride will always use external truths to exalt self. Our natural religious, this is just natural man. This is what it means to be totally depraved. Our natural religious inclinations um, will always be to walk away from truth thinking more of ourselves. You know what I mean when I say that? It's like the, it's like the man that Jesus talks about as he's teaching on prayer. Here we are. We've, we've come to the truth. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the Pentecostals down the road. They just don't have it. I thank you, Lord, that I understand total depravity. I thank you, Lord. I understand these things. I thank you, Lord, that I'm, I'm smart enough to know that we ought to hold to a simplistic form of worship. I thank you, Lord. I thank you that I have this, 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 and this. Now, should we be thankful for the truth? Yeah, of course we should. But should the truth 
ever lead us to a place to where we are exalting ourselves as if we've done something? The answer is no. No. You see, this kind of pride is true whether you tend to be more legalistic or more antinomian. It doesn't matter. So whether you're liberal or conservative, it doesn't matter. This kind of pride holds true. The legalistic person will say, well, you know what, at least I don't do this, that, and the other, and I don't dress this way, and I don't talk that way, and and when I come to church, I do it this way, and, and I make sure that I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do, and I'm not like those, you know, spiritual infants that claim to be Christians. The liberal antinomian says, I'm not worrying myself with all that, all these legalistic people doing all this legalistic stuff. God doesn't care if I read my Bible or not. God doesn't care if I come to church or not. This is all just man-made religious activity. Lord doesn't care. My righteousness is in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it. These guys are just wearing themselves out doing things that do not matter. You want to know what's missing in the legalistic person? It's the same thing that's missing in the antinomian. They don't have a heart for God. They're consumed with themselves. One finds their righteousness in the fact that they're not trying to keep a list of laws. The other finds their righteousness in the fact that they're keeping more than you could ever imagine. Jesus comes in and turns over the tables in both of those hearts. It says, you've missed it. You've missed it. The truth is, you can't handle the truth on your own. You can't take just the external truths and do anything with these that are going to be pleasing to the Lord all by yourself. You just can't do it. So Jesus comes in and he drives out the animals. He drives out the money changers. And he does the same with us. This is more than just a day-by-day kind of a thing that we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus making an emphatic statement here. So here's the question for John chapter 2. What's the solution for people who can't handle the truth? What's the solution? Try harder? Get more meticulous? Will that, go, will that work? No. Maybe cut out the middleman. Right? As, far as, as far as the temple structure goes, cut out the middleman. Get those, those religious leaders out of the temple. They're the ones ripping everybody off. Get rid of structure and form and leadership roles and responsibilities as it relates to religion. Just cut the middleman out. You know, plenty of people come to that conclusion. That's really what the home church movement's all about. That's what a lot of the newer churches, the the not-like-church churches are all about. They miss it, though. The problem's not the structure. The problem's the heart, right? The heart is what corrupts the structure. The structure could never corrupt the structure. Do we do away with the external elements in worship altogether? Again, some have done that. 
I can worship Christ out on the lake just like I can here. It's just brick and mortar. This doesn't mean anything. We don't need any more structure. Well, the answer is, you can try harder, but it won't get any better. You can get rid of the structure, but it won't get any better. You can do away with all the external elements, and it will just expose your emptiness all the more. The answer for people who cannot handle the truth is Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 40. Psalm 40. In verse 6, it says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written within my heart. Or thy law, excuse me, is within my heart. Now, Hebrews chapter 10 lets us know this is a direct reference to Jesus Christ. And, and here's, the, here's the difference. Here's the solution that God gives. It's a man who not only knows how to keep the externals, but it's a man who keeps the externals in a way that, that, that does not um, diminish, does not taint his internal motivation one bit. So... Lo, I come in the volume of the book. That's the externals. This is, what you've, this is what pleases you, Lord. This is what you've called me to do. I, I, I come in the fullness of what you've laid out in Scripture. But then he also has the other element. Um, I delight to do thy will, verse 8. Thy law is within my heart. You see, this was the thing that was missing from the Pharisees, from the Jewish temple workers. Brothers and sisters, this is the thing that's missing in you and me as well. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do, if we're trying to shore up our confidence and our worship in the Lord by doing more, doing more, doing more, doing more without addressing what's going on in our hearts. We're no better than the Pharisees. That's one of the reasons why that what you need before you can do anything that's pleasing to the Lord is a heart transplant, right? That's one of the reasons why Romans 8 talks about this. In the flesh, you can't do anything that's pleasing to God, right? We think about the, the, um, the example of that from Proverbs. The plowing of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, the plowing of the wicked is, a, is really an obedient thing. The man's trying to care for his family. He's trying to feed his family. He's working the land to provide. 
But it's an abomination to the Lord because the heart's not there. It's not being done in faith. We could take that and we could go in all kinds of different directions with it. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, these sacrifices weren't, going, weren't taking place because they were coming to God with a heart of gratitude. It was that they were taking these externals and they were using them in such a way that they were saying, this is where my hope is found. This is where my assurance rests. I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. Not only am I doing it right, I'm making sure they're doing it right. And this is where it is. Well, brothers and sisters, there's no point in us pretending like we're not wired this way because every single person in this room is wired this way. Again, it may be a different flavor. You may tend to lean toward legalistic. You may tend to lean toward um, antinomian. It doesn't really matter. Potato, potato, it's the same thing. What John is communicating here is that in the midst of all this religious chaos, Jesus comes in and first makes this emphatic statement that the temple was meant to be used for you to come to God and worship Him. And it's just become chaotic. You can't handle the truth. It's not about what you're doing. It's about how you're doing it. It's about what this thing has become. But then secondly... Look back in John chapter 2. You'll notice that as Jesus drove out the sheep, the oxen, poured out the money changers, he overthrew the tables, verse 16. He said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. What is that referring to? Well, it's referring back to the Psalms, but what does it mean, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up? It means that Jesus goes into the temple and he realizes God is not the center of this worship. God is not the reason why this is happening. And the worship that God desires is not taking place here. Another way to say this is that Jesus was eaten up or He was consumed by a motivation to see God glorified. He was consumed by the motivation of seeing God glorified. And so he did what he did. And the disciples, the disciples recognized that. This is the difference, by the way, between Christ and the Pharisees. Christ is consumed with a zeal to see God exalted. The Pharisees have all the right structure, but they're consumed with zeal to elevate themselves over the common people and to make a little money while they're at it. Secondly, Verse 18, after Jesus drives out the money changers, after Jesus cleanses the temple, it says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Now, when the Jews ask him for a sign, they're really asking him to do something to show that he has the authority to come in and interrupt the normal flow of temple practice. 
Okay, they're not asking him for entertainment. This is a sign that would display that Jesus had the right, the authority to do what he did. Jesus answered, and he said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up again in three days? But the temple that he spoke of was his body. I want to stop there. I know there's more to be read, but Jesus says, You want a sign? Here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And don't miss the fact that at this point, nobody had a clue what he was talking about. The Jews didn't know. His disciples didn't know. No one knew what he was talking about here. It wasn't until after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that his disciples, it says in verse 22, that they remembered what he said and they believed the Scriptures. But at this point, this was not one of those signs that had an immediate response. So verse 20, Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Pharisees say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, it's taken 46 years to build this. What are they talking about? Well, you know from our time in Daniel and kind of moving a bridge over into the New Testament that whenever the Jewish people came out of Babylonian captivity and they made their way back to Jerusalem and they finally rebuilt the temple, at the dedication it said you couldn't tell if people were laughing or crying because half of them were laughing and half of them were crying as far as the celebration went. The younger ones that had never seen the previous temple were thrilled. The older ones that knew something about the previous temple were just in despair over the pitiful structure that was going to replace what they once had. Well, Herod had taken the temple on as his own project, and he did it for his own glory. But Herod takes the temple and begins to add on to it. He begins to refinish what was already there. And he transforms, by the time you get to the Gospel of John, or at this, this point in the Gospel of John, Herod transforms this pitiful little structure into a magnificent spectacle for anybody to look at. I mean, it would, it would rival, some would say even exceed Solomon's temple and some of the beauty and glory that was there, again, to, to look upon. Walls that were so tall that you could stand at the bottom and look up and not be able to see the top. Pure marble. Okay? Just incredible. Other, other blocks that were overlaid with gold, some of the blocks being, I mean, humongous. It said that some of them were as large as 67 feet long, Seven and a half feet high and nine feet wide. Can you imagine moving a block like that as a structure? 67 feet tall. That's just one block. It's a glorious temple. I mean, it's something that's just, it's a marvel to look at. But what they had missed was that the glorious temple of God was actually standing right in front of them. John 1.14, 
And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Here's Jesus Christ, the tabernacle of God, coming into the temple of God. He's driving out the disordered worship. They want to know what gives you the right to do this. And He says, you destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. John's saying, again, God's answer to disordered worship is Jesus Christ. He is the temple. He is the place where God's presence dwells. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the cleansing water. He is the sweet-smelling aroma that comes up from the, the, uh, the incense. He is the bread of heaven that's set in that holy of holies. He is the mercy seat. Ironically, He is the Passover who's attending the Passover. It's all wrapped up in Him. Jesus comes and, 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 and He says, all this stuff that you're doing right now, it's just religious activity. It is obviously pointing to, foreshadowing what would come and who Christ was and what Christ would accomplish. Brothers and sisters, as we think about our own standing and our own worship... One of the things that John would have us to understand is that if you have Christ, you have everything. You lack nothing. Everything that you need to draw near to God has been given to you in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us, what, a blessing and a half in Christ Jesus? all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And we say, well, surely we need more than that. No. No, you don't. We would go on to see in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that the righteousness that you have before God that allows you to draw near to Him is not your own righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. You bring your own righteousness to God and He says it's filthy. It's filthy. God looks at you through the righteousness of His Son. You say, well, what about my progress and my growth and my sanctification? Well, Christ is your sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 30-31. It doesn't mean that we don't grow. It doesn't mean that we don't put, on, put, put effort into walking with the Lord, walking in obedience to the Lord. But what it does mean is this. It means that you cannot take one smidge of a step toward growth outside of looking and depending 100% on the work and person of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. When's the last time you just did one thing with a heart that was 100% devoted to God's glory and there was no selfish ambition or pride mixed in with it? When's the last time? Any takers on that? Raise your hand so we can all look. Okay, none. None. Not me, not you. What does it mean that Christ is our sanctification? It means that any real spiritual progress that we are making, we are doing that through the power of Jesus Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ. And that growth and that progress is acceptable before God because of the perfections of Jesus Christ that are being worked out in us 
not because we're so good and great. Colossians 2.8 would tell us you are complete in Him. You're complete in Him. We say, surely that's not true. I mean, we know that's, that's what the sermons say, but surely that's not true. Well, surely it is. This is written to a people who were very, very busy seeking to establish their own righteousness. This is written at the backdrop of a culture, a Jewish culture that was very, very busy. And Jesus comes and says, you can take this temple and you can take these elements and you can wad them up and throw them away because all they've done for you is expose your inadequacies. Nothing wrong with the temple. Nothing wrong with the animals. What was wrong with or what was wrong in the whole scenario was how the people used it and the significance that they put behind it. And so Jesus comes, number one, as one who is eaten up, consumed with zeal for the glory of the Father. Number two, Jesus comes as the sum and substance of every external requirement that God ever required for His people. So that as we seek to please the Lord and walk in obedience to the Lord, we do that, but we do not gain an ounce of righteousness from it. As we seek to walk in truth, that's commendable. But it doesn't commend us to God any more than it would have otherwise. God is not looking at us saying, oh, I'm so impressed with you, my dear child. God's looking at us saying, hand me the scrub brush because I'm not done yet. There's still a lot to get off of this guy. There's still a lot to get off of this girl. We need to take their heart through the car wash again because it's not ready. So what's the point? Well, the point is this. Any worship that is going to be acceptable to God has to be fully focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we cannot take one ounce of our own obedience and try to turn that into some measure of assurance or some measure of standing between us and God. What's God's solution to disordered worship, he cuts out the middleman, which is you. And he covers you in the righteousness of Christ, who fulfilled the law perfectly in action and in motive on behalf of his people, freeing us up to be able to worship him in spirit, in truth, and to draw near with a pure heart in love. So this really is, is a foundational message, a foundational understanding. As John is beginning to move into this, we're going to see how the, the, the chapters that come after are really going to play into this, especially as he's talking to Nicodemus. It's this reality that if you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you'd be as busy as you want to be. You've got nothing. We've got nothing. Let's pray. Father, 
again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for, um, for your Son, Jesus Christ, for communicating to us these realities that we would never come to on our own. We can get so wrapped up in ourselves. We can get so wrapped up into what we're doing. We can get so wrapped up and, and confused about the things that matter and don't matter. Father, we have to confess that we undervalue Christ on a regular basis. And we do that to our detriment. And so I pray that we would be able to see, to embrace, to walk in the reality that we are complete in Him. And we pray you would bless us to know what that means. In Jesus' name, amen.